0: Welcome to A.T. Stewart and Sons Ministries. I'm your host, A.T. Stewart. I'm glad you've chosen to join us today as we look into the Word of God. So take your Bibles and let's hang out in God's Word for a few moments and see what God would say to us today. Turn over to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. Today we're continuing our series on the eleven tests of saving faith. How you can tell that you are indeed a born again Christian. Not everyone who says I'm a Christian is a Christian. Jesus even said, many will say to me on that day, and he's talking about the judgment day, Lord, Lord, and he'll say, I never knew you, depart from me. You who practice lawlessness. And so John is writing to a group of people known as Gnostics, or so he's writing to combat Gnosticism. And the Gnostics basically believed that as long as you believed right, it didn't matter how you lived. As long as you had your belief system right, uh, you could live like you wanted to because uh, this plane, this earthly plane, this physical plane wasn't that important. It's a spiritual dimension. And John writes and says, "No, you can't separate how you live and what you really believe because you do live what you believe." And John says, "You can say you love God, but if you hate your brother, you're a liar. And the truth is not in you." He said, "Don't be deceived. You can say that uh, that you're a child of righteousness, but he says if you're walking in darkness, you're a child of the devil." Because those who are children of the light, children of God, practice righteousness. So John says you cannot separate how you live from your true spiritual standing with God. And so John is giving us 11 tests that we can put before our lives because the Scripture tells us to examine ourselves. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourself. These are two commands. So we're called on to examine ourselves, to test ourselves, to see if we're in the faith. When a person is saved, your salvation comes through faith and God's grace. Alright? So it's not anything you do that brings about your salvation. God gives you the grace and He even imparts the faith for you to come into His kingdom. But when it comes to the assurance of your salvation, how you can know that you're saved, a changed life is very much in evidence. You see, you don't obey God in order to go to heaven because you'd have to be perfect. And you're not. You obey God because you are going to heaven. See the difference? We are not saved by a changed lifestyle, turning over a new leaf. It's God's grace that saves us through what Christ accomplished. But the assurance of your salvation is a changed life. You don't change your life in order to go to heaven. Your life is changed because you are going to heaven. You see the difference? When the living God invades your life, there's got to be some changes. It cannot stay the same. And we're looking at these. We've already looked at five tests, and I'll just briefly cover those for you, and they'll be up on the screen. A person desires to walk in the light and in fellowship with God. There's a desire to be obedient to God's commands and to surrender to Christ's Lordship. There is a pursuit and realization of a personal relationship with God in Christ. There's a growing appreciation of the power and authority of God's Word. And today we come to number six. And if you have your bulletin, I'll have a place for you to take notes there. A growing love for the things that honor God, along with a growing contempt for worldliness that opposes God. As a Christian, you should see a growing love in your life for the things that honor God. And at the same time, there will be a growing contempt for the things of the world that oppose and dishonor God. Now we see that in our passage today. And I'll ask you to stand in respect for the Word of God as I read verses 15 and 16 of 1 John chapter 2. Do not love the world, nor things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, and also its lust. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. You may be seated. Now the first thing we must clear up is what does John mean when he uses the term world in this passage. Now if you read the Gospel of John as well as John's letters, you will see that John uses the world in several different ways. One way when John uses the word that's translated world it's a Greek cosmos. He's talking about the creation of this globe with the people that inhabit it. And we know that from a verse that we've all memorized, John 3:16, "For God so loved the world. He means this globe with the people that inhabit it. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life." So he uses the term world sometimes to refer to this earth with the people on it. Also, sometimes John uses the term world to talk about the world system, the values, the philosophy, the opinions, the mindset of the world that is opposed to God. Now we see this over in... John chapter 14, when the term world is used, and it's the way John uses it in our passage as well. Now, there are two things we see about this world system that's opposed to God. And the first thing is that it is opposed to God. Alright? It's opposed to God, and it is under Satan's influence and control. Look in John 14, 30. Jesus is speaking. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me. The ruler of the world is coming. Jesus is talking about Satan, the devil, when he calls him the ruler of the world. The world system. The thoughts, the philosophies, the opinions, the values, the way of view of life. That the world at large, those are not a part of God's kingdom. The world at large has, and he says that this world system is controlled and influenced by Satan. So much so he can be called the ruler of this world. He's also called the prince of the power of the air. In one place. He's also called the God of this world in another place. And so it becomes clear to us that this world system that is in hostility and opposition to God is heavily influenced and controlled by none other than the adversary of God and man, Satan. The second thing we notice is that this world system that's influenced and controlled by Satan is always at odds and hostile toward Satan. God. Again, over in uh, John 15, verse 18, we see Jesus speaking about this when he says, If the world hates you, and he's talking about the world system. He's not talking about the planet and the people on it. But if the world system hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. But if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world, the world system hates you. Now we use the term worldliness or worldly to capture this concept of the world when we're talking about the world system, the values, the philosophies, the opinions, uh, the the lifestyle, the viewpoint uh, of those who are not believers and those who are under the influence of the enemy of our souls. And so John speaks about this in our verses for today. He uses three descriptive phrases to talk about this world system. First, in verse 16, he calls it the lust of the flesh. The term lust in itself, in the Scriptures, is not positive or negative. Now, you and I think of lust, we think of sexual lust, and we give it a a, a negative connotation. But actually, the Greek word simply means a very strong desire, a very strong emotion. And the word is actually used for a strong desire for righteousness in some places. And so... You know, it's okay to lust for righteousness, to have a strong desire for God, but here the term obviously speaks of a strong desire for the flesh. Now, by the flesh, John's not talking about the skin that we have on our bodies. He's talking about that sin nature that we're born with. He's talking about that inclination towards sin that we find ourselves in. He's talking about that... uh, proclivity we have to do what is wrong rather than to do what is right. He's talking about that part of our nature that's seen in all children who don't have to be taught to be selfish. They don't have to be taught to be greedy. They don't have to be taught to uh, to, to to be hostile. They have to be taught to be just the opposite because it's natural in us toward those things that are wrong. And so when he says the lust of the flesh characterizes this worldliness, this world system. He's saying that the world system is characterized by a strong desire for immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousies, outbursts of anger, envies, drunkenness. It's the morality of the world that can be characterized by three P words promiscuity, permissiveness, and perversion. Now, if you want to see the lust of the flesh, just turn on your television. Just go to the cinema. Right? Listen to the secular music that's out there. You want to see the world system's morality? That's all you got to do. I mean, it's, again, you know, when I was growing up, The good girls didn't kiss on the first date. Now it seems like the good girls don't have sex on the first date. You know, if things have so gone downhill morally, the world system accepts the fact that people will have premarital sex. Look at the movies. Look at the television shows. I mean, you know what the standard is? Just make sure... That, that is what you want to do and you're not getting pushed into it. That's the world standard for what's, when it's alright to have premarital sex. Just wait, and make sure you're ready. Now that is against God totally, completely. That's the world system that we find ourselves in. And I don't have to explain it. You see it all around you all the time. You know, and, and, and it shocks us when morality is Lift it up. I mean, I can't remember when the last time I heard someone on television counseling a young person say, well, you need to wait until you're married before you engage in sexual relationship. It would shock me if I heard it, wouldn't it? That shows you how much the world system's lust of the flesh has permeated. Also, in addition to this, comes the whole idea of this diversity. Diversity. That homosexuality is simply an alternate lifestyle. One of the uh, larger employers in Cobb County, uh, and this is only the one I know about, I'm pretty sure it's it's repeated in many others, uh, has diversity training, makes its employer employees go through diversity training, which doesn't mean simply to treat all people with respect, but... Allow them to come out and, and promote their lifestyle as acceptable alternative. That's the world system. Perversion, promiscuity, permissiveness. That's what John means when he talks about the lust of the flesh. Then he talks about the lust of the eyes. That strong desire for things that we see. Now men are typically more tempted by what they see than women, but what we see is an avenue for temptation to come within our being. All you have to do to understand the lust of the eyes, again, is look at the advertisements that we have on the television, at the cinema, in the newspaper, in the magazines. It's there. Everywhere you turn around, they're trying to convince you that what you see, you need. That you're not complete without what you see on that screen. You need that brand new, shiny car. They don't put a beat-up, dull-looking car on there, do they? Because they know what you see, see, is going to affect you. So they use that beautiful model to advertise that product. Right? Because they want you to associate having that product. Well, maybe if I get it, I'll look like that or whatever. Lust of the eyes. Pornography and, and how pervasive it is on the Internet. Again, it just shows you this worldliness that's called the lust of the eyes. This desire for material things, materialism. Lust of the eyes just feeds into that. Again, billions and billions of dollars spent every year to convince you and I that we need things to make us happy. The world system says things will make you happy. Happy. If you can just get the right things in your life, you'll be content, you'll be satisfied, you will be happy. Somebody told me this week about a family that lives up in New York, and they are very wealthy. And so the grandfather is the one that has the wealth, and he contacted this travel agent that I know or the family contacted the travel agent and said, we want you to plan for us a trip to go away this Christmas. That we do this and we were miserable last Christmas. We want you to plan us one this Christmas that will make us happy. But the truth is, nobody wants to go because granddad is such a horrible grouch. So this travel agent found a place down in the Caribbean a place they could stay $17,000 a night. She brought in, she's going to bring in chefs to come in and cook meals for them on different nights. It's going to cost over $150,000 for this eight days in the Caribbean. They have a private jet that they'll fly down in, and that's not counting the cost of the jet. And nobody wants to go. I see, you and I think, man, if I could do that, woo, I'd have a great Christmas. Man, I'd, I'd be happy. It's just you and I that don't have it thinks it would make us happy if we did have it. But the folks that have it, they know what doesn't make happiness. They're miserable. When you bought everything you can buy and it didn't make you happy, where are you left? Being miserable. The world says, get the right thing. And you'll be happy. That's not what God says. That's the world system that wants us seeking things and outward circumstances to bring us inward happiness. The lust of the eyes. And then he talks thirdly, the pride of life. The pride of life. This is the self-centeredness that the world promotes. Do what you want to do. Follow your heart and you'll be happy. No. Follow your heart and you'll be in trouble. (laughs) Man is the sum of all things. He's the measure of all. He doesn't need God. You be a self-made man. You pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You make it. You don't need anybody or anything. You're the captain of your soul. That's the world's pride of life. I want prestige. I want power. I want money because of the power and prestige it buys me. I can get what I want. People will admire me. People will look up to me. God, don't get in my way. I want to live my life my way. That's the pride of life that the world system promotes. For John says his lust of the flesh, this lust of the eyes, this pride of life is opposed to God. And he says we are not to love this world system. In fact, he says if we do love the world system, verse 15, that the love of the Father is not in us. The problem is, you and I have all been heavily influenced by this world system since we were born. We're born into this world system. We buy into this world system. And depending on your family, whether they were a Christian family that adopted the values of Scripture, or whether you grew up in a non-Christian family... All of us, to some extent, have been influenced by the world system, hadn't we? And the longer or older you were before you became a Christian, the more you have been influenced by this world system. Now, when you become a Christian, you immediately begin to feel a little uneasy and realize some of these things you've accepted, believed before don't jibe with this new walk. That you're on, And so you see this growing uneasiness with the world system you have been taught and bought into with the new life you have in Christ, don't you? And what you gradually see is you have more and more of a love for the things of God with a growing contempt for the things of the flesh. Now, a key verse that I think speaks to this is Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Because we're not to love the world, and if we do love the world system, that means the love of God is not in us. That brings me to this key question, well then, what should our relationship be to the world? Because we're in the world. Now, some have answered the question and say, well, we need to pull off in a monastery. We need to totally separate ourselves from the world. Right? Or the Amish We're going to pull ourselves away from the things of the world. Is that what God's talking about? Over in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Paul says, Do not be conformed to this world, and he's talking about the world system, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, I want you to look at this word, renewing. It's actually, the Greek word means renovation. He says, don't be conformed to this world. Don't be like this world. You're in it, but don't be like it. Don't conform to its opinions, its values, its lifestyle. But instead, be transformed by the renovation of your mind. Now, how do you renovate your mind? Well, how do you renovate a building? All right? You go into a building, and you actually don't tear it down. You don't raise it. And I never figured out why raise means to tear down, but you think it means the opposite. But anyway, you don't do that. But what do you do? You go in and you look at the boards. The ones that are bad, you tear them out. You replace them, Right? So you go through the house, taking out what's bad, taking out what's rotten, and you replace it with what's good. So you're renovating the house. All right? Well, how do you renovate your mind? You go through your mindset, your values, your opinions, your philosophies of life, and you look at them and you say, now, is this good or bad? Now, what's the standard? The Word of God. You renovate your mind by the Word of God. So you take all of your life, all of your values, all of your opinions, all of your philosophies, your lifestyle, your viewpoint, and you place them next to Scripture. And if it doesn't match with God's Word, what do you do? You tear it out. If your view of sex before marriage has been, that's okay, as long as you love each other. And now you're a Christian and you look at God's Word and it says, wait for marriage. You say, well, now I've got to tear that one out and put in the place of it what God says. If your view of forgiveness has been, well, I'll forgive them when they act like they deserve it or when they ask me to or when they start acting right toward me. And then you see where God's Word says you forgive because God has forgiven you in Christ, whether they deserve it or not, you say, "Uh uh-oh, i got to pull that one out. And you pull it out and you replace it with God's principle of forgiveness. You see? And as you go through your life and do that, you are being slowly but surely renovated into the image of God by the renewing of your mind. That's where it takes place, right here. And so as a Christian who has been influenced by worldliness, accept that from the outset. We all have. Some more than others, but we all have. You need to go through and examine everything you think, you feel, your opinions, your philosophies, your viewpoints about things, and go match them up with God's Word. And if they don't match up, you know what to do with them. Pull them out. So that's how you as a Christian... Come to the place that you love the things of God and honor Him and have a growing contempt for the things that oppose Him, the worldly system. Now let me give you some very practical aspects again as we go on with what your relation to the world should be. You are to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Jesus says in Matthew 5, You are the salt of the earth, but as the salt has become tasteless, How can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You and I to be light and salt. Light shines into darkness. The world is considered darkness. You and I need to live in a way that shows, that shines forth the love of Christ. We and I need to live in a way that people see the love of Christ in our life, that it shines out. That they see the glory of God in the way we live. And it shines. Salt is distinctive. You can taste salt in anything that is there. Too much salt immediately. You don't think, well, now what is this? What's that strange taste? No, you just say, man, this has got too much salt in it. This is salty. And have you ever tried to get salt out of something? I've never been able to do it. If it's oversalted, you can't unsalt it. Salt is distinctive. As Christians, we are to be distinct. We're to be different from the world. People ought to see a difference in our lives. And I don't mean necessarily in how we dress, although there are certain extremes obviously Christians shouldn't go into when it comes to dress. But I don't mean you have to wear black and, and dress like the Amish, but when you at work, people ought to know by the way you talk that you're different than the way other people talk. That your attitude toward your boss is different than the prevailing attitude among other workers. That your diligence at work, that, that the way you handle yourself and handle conflict in the workplace is different. We need to live in a way that people see a difference in us. If people have been living around you for a year and they have no idea you're a Christian, I'd be concerned. Man, it, it, it never amazes me when when I may be talking to somebody and they'll tell me about a person they know or they work with and I'll say, is he a Christian? And they say, well, I don't know. I mean, I would hope that if you hang around me for a year at work, that I'd give you an indication that I am a Christian by the way I talk or the way I don't talk or, or something. So we need to be different from the world. Then Jesus says we are chosen out of the world. John fifteen nineteen. If you were of the world, of the world system, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. We live in the world. But Jesus chose us to come out of the world system to not have the same opinions and attitudes and values and philosophies that the world system has. We're to be different again. He's chosen us to come out. And you can't hold on to both. You can't walk in the middle. You have got to let go of the world system and embrace God's way. He also says in the same verse, we are not of the world. When you're born born again into God's kingdom, let me tell you, you're no longer of this world. Your citizenship has been transferred to heaven. You get a new passport. And heaven is your home. You become a stranger and an alien in this world. And you ought to feel different. Do you feel out of step with the world? Man, you ought to. I do. You'll see things happen in the news. you read things on TV. you think, how in the world can people think that? How can they do that? What are they thinking? How can they have those opinions and values? Because you're out of step. They're marching to a different drummer than we're marching to. And when you're not of the world, you begin to feel more and more like you're out of place here. He says we're going to have tribulation in this world. In John 16, These things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. But take courage. I've overcome the world. Expect to have problems and troubles and tribulations in this world. You're going to have it. Because we're walking against it. Because we're not in step with it. So expect that. He also says that... He has sent us into the world. John 17, 18, As you sent me into the world, Jesus is praying to the Father, I have also sent them into the world. So the answer is not for you to go off in some monastery somewhere and pull yourself away from the world, but the answer is for you and I to go in the world and bring about change. By the way we live, by the way we talk, by the way we vote, Elect Christian politicians who will follow Christian principles. Get involved in seeing change brought about and Christian principles proclaimed. He sent us into the world. Sent us in that same prayer. Jesus prayed that God would protect us. Not take us out, but protect us from the world. So you have God's protection. The Bible says also we are crucified to this world in Galatians 6. But may it never be that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The Bible says you're dead to the world as far as its praise is concerned. Its criticism is concerned. You're dead to the world. Don't worry about what they think about you. You'd be worried about what Jesus thinks. Don't worry about what the non-Christians think about you at work or at the ball field or at school. You'd be concerned what Jesus thinks about you. You've died to the world. You've been crucified to the world system. And then we see He tells us to live sensibly. Titus 2.12 Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. You and I are to say no to the desires of the sin nature, to the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, the lust of the flesh. we will to say no to those things. And we will to say yes to righteousness and godliness. Choose to live rightly with God. And then lastly, we are overcomers. John says, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is a victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. We're overcomers. Christ is overcome. The victory is ours. All we have to do is claim it. Through His power. A non-Christian embraces the world. A person who says they're Christian but is not lives just like everybody else they're still running after that same almighty dollar they're trying to accumulate all those things thinking that they'll bring happiness they're talking just like the world talks yet they go to church on sunday and sit in that pew and saying oh how I love jesus but they go out during the week and live just like everybody else john says no uh-uh, don't be mistaken don't deceive yourself the love of god's not in you if you love the world you embrace the world. It doesn't mean that we never go see a movie. It doesn't mean you don't watch any television. But what it means is you don't seek your primary joy, your satisfaction from this world, but from God. I enjoy a sunset as well as anybody else. But you know, I enjoy it because I know my God created. I can worship Him in that sunset. Make sure that your entertainment, your happiness, your joy is found in Jesus and in your relationship to Him. Not in this world system. So do you pass the test? Do you see a growing love in your life for the things that honor God and a growing contempt for those things that oppose Him, that dishonor Him? Let's pray.